Thank you, Pastor Chad, for that prayer of supplication. And I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to the 139th Psalm, Psalm 139. If you haven't already found yourself there in the Word of God, and as I continue in this series of messages out of the book of Psalms that I've simply entitled Life Lessons from Psalms. There's a lot to be gleaned from these powerful uh, divine words out of the Old Testament. And I invite you as you study uh, the scripture, even after it's preached, to let the Spirit of God continue to just ruminate uh, that word and, and, and let it settle in your heart. And then look for avenues to apply it in your life, life lessons in the Psalms. And Psalm 139, you've read it responsibly. You've seen it uh, in your worship guides on the screen. You've heard it mentioned in prayer. Uh, and, and I pray that God will speak to your heart as we look at this psalm. And I've given a title to the message. I don't typically title individual messages. But, but just knowing the essence of the spirit of this psalm, uh, I entitled it Celebrating the Excellence of Knowing God. Celebrating the Excellence of Knowing God. In this wonderful psalm, of celebration, Psalm 139. It's a celebration of David, and you'll notice that he's not focusing his attention on the myriad of sacrifices and rituals and prayers that are uh, usually associated with organized Judaism of that day, but, but passionately he rejoices in the fact that he knows Jehovah, the Lord God, knows him personally. And even more importantly than that, he is known by God. And to David, that's an awesome thing. And, and so he's not relying upon the, the structure of organized religion to bring him joy and celebration. It's all in his personal relationship with God. You know, it's very much that way for you and me as Christians. We do not focus upon the works that we do for God or our own personal merit. We don't focus on religious rituals. We don't even focus upon our own affiliation with the individual church or denomination because we understand that the most marvelous fact is that Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of Almighty God, the Savior of the world, we have placed our personal faith and trust in Him and He knows us. He knows me. Jesus knows me. And I know Him through the reading of the Word of God. Listen, I know Him. He knows me. He died on a cross to pay the price for our sins. And we celebrate that here soon at Easter next week. Not only did He die on a cross to pay the price for our sins, but He was buried in a tomb. And on the third day, you know the Scripture tells us by the power of God, He was gloriously and eternally resurrected from the grave, given victory eternally over death and sin. And that's what we celebrate that Easter. And listen, because we know Him and because we have repented of our sins and fully placed our trust in Him and our faith in Him, we know that we are saved from the awful terrible, eternal penalty of our sins. And that's a glorious thing to know. And because of that, we know that the Scripture tells us that we have been adopted into the wonderful, eternal family of God. We have gone from being enemies of God as we sang in that beautiful song about Christ taking upon Himself our sins that we might receive the righteousness of God. And because of that, we have inherited the righteousness of Christ and we have been made to be adopted into the eternal family of God. And the Scripture tells us that one fantastic day we will 
will leave this world will take up our residence in a glorious place there with God in the presence of the angels and all the Christian loved ones that have gone on ahead of us and we will be there in the presence of the Lord forever. Why? Because we know Him. We know Him personally. And we live with the glorious assurance of knowing that He knows us. And you see, to David, that shepherd boy who was anointed one of the greatest kings of the nation of Israel, that was the greatest thing he had going for him. He knew Yahweh. And Yahweh knew him. And so as we look at Psalm 139, we see David reflecting on his relationship with Yahweh, the Lord God, and he's celebrating here knowing his God. And I want to look at the various stanzas that you find in this psalm. And the first stanza you'll see David focusing upon the fact that he knows God. He's celebrating knowing God's omniscience. Knowing God's omniscience. You know, God is awesome. And David brings that out. In fact, if you, as we prepare to read Psalm 139, hold your place there. Just go back maybe a page or two, wherever you would find Psalm 131. Another psalm of David, a very short psalm, three verses. But you know, David makes an observation there and a confession in verse 1 of Psalm 131. He says, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. David, yes, indeed, understood that, that he knew God personally, but he also confessed he would never know everything about God. Newsflash. Neither will you. You'll know a lot about God, but dear friend, your brain, my brain, will not be able to comprehend all that the Scriptures reveal or all that God is, and you will never know everything about God. No one will. Listen to the the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans in chapter uh, 11. Paul writes these words. He says, oh, in verse 33, Romans 11, 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And then he goes into quoting Job in verse, uh, chapter 41, verse 11, when Job said, For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it be repaid to him? The rhetorical answer is no one. For of him, speaking of God, and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Going back to Psalm 139. I just want to inject the fact that, ladies and gentlemen, we can never know everything about God. But let me tell you something. David clearly understood that God knows everything about us. And he celebrated the fact that the Lord possesses a perfect knowledge of his people. Read with me there in Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1. He says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. And we'll revisit that later in the psalm in another stanza. You have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O oh God, you know it altogether. David shares here that God, our God, knows everything about us. 
He possesses a perfect knowledge of us because He searches us. Ladies and gentlemen, you think you're hiding things. You may hide things from your, your, your parents or you're from your spouse or from church members or, or pastors. Or Listen, but let me tell you something. You hide nothing from God. He reads us like a book. He searches us. And you can understand, David thought that was a wonderful thing. He says, you have searched me and you know me, O God. Not only that, God detects every action of His people. God detects every action of His people. Do you see what He says there, verse 2 and on? He says, you, you, you know my sitting down. You know when I'm sitting down, when I'm rising up. You understand my thought from afar off. You comprehend wherever I go. I'm lying down, walking along the way. Wherever I am, you know. Because your knowledge, oh God, is perfect. I thought it was interesting. I went over to the emergency department with Sister Dolores Royal this week. She had to go by there. She had some breathing issues and I want you to be praying for her. But as she was laying there on that uh, stretcher in the emergency department, and those of you that have been in that area, you understand it's not the most comfortable or amiable place to be, but that's, that's where you got to be when you're sick like that. But I noticed something different about her that I hadn't seen on other patients before. And she had a little bracelet around her wrist and it had a little device hanging off of it that looked like a miniature key fob or something like that. And I said, Dolores, what, what is that? And she says, well, that's my patient tracker. I said, my goodness, they got GPS in the hospital now. But in a hospital the size of Wake Forest Medical Center, it's a good thing, isn't it? Because they can put you in a corner in a hallway somewhere waiting for tests and lose you. So at least now they can track their patients by radar, I guess. But anyway, it was a patient tracker. But listen, God doesn't need a device like that. Because ladies and gentlemen, He knows exactly where we are. He knows where we have been. Let me ask you, where have you been this week? Where have you been this week? Do you understand God knows? Not only does He know where you've been this week. He knows where you're going this week. You see, there's nothing to be concealed from God because His knowledge is perfect. God knows everything about us. And how we view this amazing fact depends a great deal on the level of our faithfulness and obedience to God. Because you see, if you're walking in fellowship with God and you're obedient to God and you have a, a, a good rapport with the Spirit of God, let me tell you something. It's, a, it's something to celebrate. You're excited. You're, want, you're glad to know that God knows everything about you. You're glad to know that God knows where you are. But on the other hand, if you're leading a shady Christian life and you're, you're being superficial and you're not really being obedient to God and you're out of fellowship with God and you're being disobedient, let me tell you something, it's not a very comforting thought to know that God reads your thoughts and God knows exactly where you go. So you see, the level of your obedience and faithfulness to God makes a determination about how you view that. David was excited. He hasn't always been excited, and we know the life of David. David was not perfect. He was a man who was considered to be the apple of God's eye, a man after God's own heart. But let me tell you something. You know from the scriptural record, David was not a perfect man. He committed adultery. He, he organized the murder of a, a, a woman's husband. Let me tell you, David was not a, a perfectly innocent person. But at this moment in his life, as he's writing about his relationship with God, he celebrates the fact that God possesses a perfect knowledge of his people. But the Lord also protects those who know and love him. God protects us. 
Look with me there as you read with me in verse 5. He says, You have hemmed me or hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. You see, God lovingly guides His people. But here, the, the psalmist is saying, Lord, you've got, you've, you've got my back. <laughs> you've got my front. If I turn around to run from you, there you are. If I want to run ahead of you, there you are. If I try to veer to the right, there you are. To the left. He says, you've, you've hedged me around. There's nowhere, Lord, that I could possibly, if I even wanted to escape your presence. You're there. Or your knowledge of me. And he's talking about God's divine knowledge of his people. And it's almost like God has got his hand on his people. David drew great comfort from the reality that his God loved him very personally and knew him. And he had that relationship with God. We, you may recall the words of that wonderful pastoral psalm, Psalm 23, when David said, The Lord, he is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters, the safe waters. He restores my soul. Why? Because he knows me. David goes on to say, and he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Why? Because God knew David. David was always under the watchful eye of an omniscient God. And so are you, dear Christian. So are you. I think about a, a mother's uh, maternal radar, if you will. That's the best way I can describe it. Now, we dads, we love our kids and we care about them. We try to take care of our kids. But, you know, we, we understand. We confess we're nothing compared to the mothers because mothers just have that, that wonderful God-given instinct about the whereabouts of the children. And it amazes me. I think about my mother with 11 children and we're like a bunch of biddies running around, even in a crowd, you know. You know, she didn't have 10 little Indians. She had 11. You know, say 10 plus 1. And, but, but, you know, my dad was oblivious to where we might be. And, you know, but my mom was always sensing, oh, one's missing. Oh, where's Charlie? You know, where's Julia? Where's, you know, and I watched the mothers here and same thing. You mothers are just amazing. You know, you can be engaged in conversation with a friend or talking about something else, but yet I can tell, you, you, know, uh, you know, you're sensing, where's, where's that little one? Where is she? Where, where did he go? You know? And, and, and it's the same way. There's nowhere you go. There's nothing that you find yourself involved in that, God's, that God hasn't hemmed you in. And He's got His watchful eye on you. And David, thinking about that and contemplating that in verse 6, he says, such, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Just, just knowing that you know me like that God, that knowing that you watch over me like that God, just knowing that, that there's nothing that can touch me that you don't know about it. God is just so wonderful I can't hardly comprehend it. He said in verse 6 there, it is high, I cannot attain it. I just can't wrap my arms or my mind around that, oh God. As he praises the Lord. And I'm personally grateful that here at our church that we do put a lot of emphasis upon knowing God. 
Because the more that we know God in, in our worship, and I thank the pastoral team for being so dedicated in making our worship God-centered, and, and I applaud the church for having the faith and trust for making sure that we have a worship-centered, I mean a God-centered worship experience. Because let me tell you something, the more that we exalt God and read in His Word, the more that we sing songs that focus upon the greatness of our God and the attributes of our God, the more that we learn about our God. Listen, we're learning about how awesome He is and how much he loves us well as we move to the next stanza beginning in verse 7 you'll see that David shifts his attention from talking about God's omniscience to God's omnipresence knowing of God's omnipresence the fact that God is everywhere he's everywhere he's everywhere sounds like one of those rescue superhero things you know You know, people say, well, you know, the devil, he's, he's everywhere. He's bothering people here, bothering people there. You know what? The devil isn't everywhere. He's limited. He's a created being. Now, he's got his minions, the demons that are working all over the world. And he certainly works through them. But he can't be everywhere. Only God can be everywhere. Only God can be omnipresent. And David understood that. You know, I thought it was interesting in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, the last verse of that wonderful Gospel, the last words of the Lord to His disciples. You may recall, just as He was giving them the Great Commission, do you remember what Jesus said? Lo, I am with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a promise from the Son of God. That's a promise from our Savior. That's a promise from our Lord. He's saying to you, there's nowhere you'll find yourself. There are no circumstances that you'll be facing that I'm not with you. Not only does God know what you're going through, not only does God know what you're thinking and saying, listen, not only does God know what you're feeling, but He's there with you. Look at verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? It sounds almost like a child trying to pick their parent's mind. Like, if I'm going to run away from you, where might be some alternatives, some optional places that I could go, you couldn't go? Well, my mother, she was a wonderful mom. She had many wonderful attributes and qualities and everything, but I, I really don't think she could climb a tree. And so I knew that if I climbed a tree, she probably wouldn't follow me up there. But then later I found out she was there at the bottom when I got down later. (laughs) But listen, there's no place. You know, he's saying, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, the, the abode of the dead, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, and you know, it's interesting, that Hebrew expression speaks as a sunrise. And I don't know if you've watched the beautiful sunrise where the sun, you can just see the sky beginning to glow, and you know it's just a few moments here. I love to be at the beach and standing out there at the waves, you know, and watching the, the, the morning sky begin to glow with that beautiful orange glow and different colors, the hues of the rainbow as the sun is getting closer and closer to the horizon, and you're waiting with anticipation, you know, any minute now, any minute now. But, but at that very moment when the sun peaks up, it's like a wash. It bursts forth. It's not like it just creeps. It just bursts forth. It just moves at a vast velocity across all the landscape. He's, David says, oh my goodness, the, 
even if, if I could move as fast as the sunrise, wherever I would go, even to the uttermost parts of the sea. He says, you're there. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. So David, in talking about the omnipresence of God, he wants us to understand that our God's unrestricted presence is always with us, eliminating any possibility for secret sin. Oh, listen, friend, you can go into the darkest uh, honky-tonk that you want to, a bar or whatever. You can commit a, a sin in, in, in the darkest bedroom you want to or, or, or some porn factory or whatever. But let me tell you something. God is there. I want you just to listen to David. I told you he wasn't a perfect man. And, and I told you how he had committed sin. And David talks about this idea of sinning in the presence of God in that wonderful psalm of penance when David is praying there in, in, in Psalm 51. Listen to what David says in verse 41. And he's talking to God. He, he's committed adultery with another man's wife and she's gotten pregnant and, 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 and he's arranged to have her husband Uriah killed and, and, and just hideous things. But listen to David. The thing that broke David's heart the most. In verse 4 of Psalm 51, David says, Against you, you only, speaking to God, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Oh God, you were there. You watched the whole sordid affair. You saw me at my lowest. You saw, you were there. And dear friend, let me tell you something. Wherever you are, God is there. But it also can be comforting to know that just as God is present when we make mistakes, our God is always present when we are in trouble and we desperately need Him. In Psalm 91, 15, the psalmist said, God is saying through the psalmist, He shall call upon me. And I shall answer him. I will be with him. I will deliver him and honor him. You understand? No matter where you are, no matter what you're facing, no matter how dire the circumstances are, when you cry out to God, he doesn't send you a telegram. He's there. God's absolute sovereignty extends everywhere. He has access to anyone, anywhere, no exceptions. I don't think it's better illustrated in the Bible than in the book of Jonah. I know all the kids love the story of Jonah and that great fish. But in Jonah chapter 2, just consider the fact that Jonah is praying. But he's not just praying, he's praying from the belly of a fish. He's been swallowed whole. It says in verse 17 of chapter 1, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah, in chapter 2, verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. You know, I really believe he's the only man or woman ever prayed from a fish's belly. Now those of us who love seafood, we prayed with fish in our belly, but that's not the same thing. 
Okay? Jonah's praying from the belly of a stinking fish that he's occupied for three, eight, three days and three nights. And he says, I cried out to God because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And David, I mean, Jonah goes on to say, I went down to the moorings of the mountains. In, in other words, the lowest, uh, not only was I in the sea, I was in the deepest parts of the sea. Scientists tell us that in some portions of the Indian Ocean, that there are, there are places that are so deep you can take Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, and set it down at that spot. And the ocean is still a mile over the top of that, uh, that mountain. And Jonah says, not only was I underwater, I was down there like one of those nuclear subs on the bottom of the bottom. From the depths of the sea, Jonah says, I cried out to God. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? God was there. God was there. There are no exceptions to the presence of God. He instantly expresses His presence wherever He chooses. God can pop in anywhere, y'all. I love that portion of the book of Daniel in chapter 5, verses 3-6, through where it talks about, you remember when Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, led the army to conquer Jerusalem. And they not only conquered the city, they tore the city down, the walls, they, they destroyed the temple, and in destroying the temple, they took all the golden utensils, the silver utensils that were dedicated to God's service, and they took them back to Babylon. Fast forward, the next generation, there's Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, and he's just as wicked as his daddy and he's having one of those drunken orgies with all of his wives and his concubines and, and, and his rulers and they're all there having a good time and, and just to have some fun. He says, hey, go, go get all those golden instruments that were gods. <laughs> you know, the, the Hebrew God. And, and go get all those silver utensils that we took out of that, that God's temple. Let's, let's serve wine in them just to have some fun. And, and, and to make matters worse, they began to offer a blessing. They began to pray to the gods of the gold and the gods of the silver. And they're just having a big old time poking fun at the God of the Jews. <laughs> God showed up. Just like that. His hand. That's all he showed. That's all he had to show was his hand. And his hand began to scratch, to etch into the plaster on the walls of that temple ballroom. And he began to scratch the letters. Belshazzar didn't know it at that time, but Daniel would interpret it for it in the letters of that, of that message said, Your days are numbered, oh boy. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. <laughs> And do you know before that day was over, Belshazzar and all of his rulers were killed. The Persian army swept in. Let me tell you something. God didn't wait for an invitation. God shows up where he wants to. God shows up when he wants to. You may recall there was a zealous Pharisee on his way from Jerusalem to, to a place called Damascus. He was going to arrest and harass some more Christians. Yes, he was. He was going to break up that movement called the Way, the church. And on the way to Damascus, riding along on that horse, all of a sudden Jesus showed up. The resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ blinded Saul, knocked him to the ground and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't send a messenger to tell Saul, I want to meet him in Damascus. Let me tell you something. God can be where he wants to, when he wants to. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad. I'm glad that our God is so omnipresent that he can be in places that maybe other people can't reach me. 
Let me tell you something. God can show up behind the bars of a jail cell in a prison unit. Yes, He can. God can show up in the, in the ICU unit at a hospital. Yes, He can. When He wants to. He can just pop right in. Let me tell you something. I'm glad He can. God can show up in your bedroom when you're kneeling by the side of your bed facing a tragedy or crisis and the tears streaming down your cheek and you don't know what you're going to do. Let me tell you something. When you cry out to God, He's there. And some of you know that from firsthand experience. God, our God, there's no limit in Him. David goes on with his celebration in the next stanza in verse 13. Celebrating and knowing of God's divine providence. In other words, God not only knows us and He's, he's with us, but let me tell you something, our God is not, as the deist would have you believe, He's not just some disinterested, you know, cosmic deity that, that, that created us and went off on His way and left us here. God's involved in the lives of His people. And let me tell you something, that begins at the very beginning of creation. You go back in the creation story in the book of Genesis in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. The blessed Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit said, Let us create man in our image. In our image we will create him, that he might fellowship with us. So you see, God had his hand directly involved even in the creation of man. Job said that same thing in Job chapter 10. as He's talking about the glorious reality Listen to what Job said in Job chapter 10, verse 8. He says, talking to God, Your hands have made me and fashioned me an intricate unity, yet you would destroy me. Remember, I pray that you have made me like clay and you would turn me into dust again. Job is quizzing God, if you will. But he acknowledges God. You're the one who created me. You're the one that shaped me, fashioned me. He said, did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? In other words, out of just milk, didn't you make cheese? out? <laughs> and you can't appreciate that if you're a city boy or city girl. But you know, I can remember many a times as a little boy watching my mom, usually with a baby on one lap, she'd be over there with the churn. The old fa- you seen those old-fashioned clay stone churns? And, I, and you had this paddle on the end of a stick, and she would be churning that old buttermilk, just churning it away. And it never ceased to amaze me that somehow she worked a miracle because she could make a, a whole pack of butter come out of that churn. Well, not just as a pack, but she would take the scrapings of the, the fat that would accumulate out of that. But out of that milk, she would form a whole cake of homemade butter and she would let us help decorate it. And boy, we were creative. Yeah. And Job says, just like somebody churning and making cheese out of milk, he says, you made me out of nothing. And you clothed me, verse 11, with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews and have granted me life and favor. In other words, God, I know that you have been involved in my life from the very beginning. So was God involved in the life of that great prophet Jeremiah in chapter 1. God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you and I ordained you a prophet in the nations. God said, said to Jeremiah, listen, even before you were born, I knew you. Listen, God's providential involvement in our lives, ladies and gentlemen, begins, and this will blow some people's mind, but even before your conception. That's what the Word says. You see, every person is the result of God's intentional creativity. Our Heavenly Father created every individual baby. You understand? With the God of creation, there are no mistakes. There are no accidents. There are no disposable babies. 
Because every one of them, even before conception, they are the handiwork of God. And that's what David is celebrating. Look at verse 13. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You have covered me or knitted me in my mother's womb. Folks, this is before sonograms. David's writing as if he's looking at a sonogram. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and, and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Talking of the mother's womb. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. David says, God, even before I began to take shape. I forget what it was Tim used to call Asher when he was just a little sonogram dot, but pinto bean or something like that. Because <laughs> he was shaped like a... I mean, but he was a, a per, perfect little life being shaped by God. But David said, even before I became a pinto bean, <laughs> you knew me. You knew me. You were shaped. You saw my substance. And in your book, in other words, figuratively, in your mind, they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. That's God's response to the, to the pitiful, ridiculous, pagan notions that life starts at birth or after. No, God says life begins even before conception because in the mind of eternal providential God, He knows you. He not only knew Jeremiah's name, he, only, he also knew that He was going to call him as a prophet, ordain him as a prophet. He knew how His own life would play out. Listen, God saw the book of your life before you were even in existence. And God has been involved through the span, throughout the span of our lives, as you look at verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. David is saying, it's awesome, God. How wonderful the reality that not only are you, have you been involved in my life from the very conception, my very conception of before that, but your presence we are, we are the focus of God's infinite mind. You, you are the focus of God's. There's never a second of a day that you aren't in the mind of God. And He's working out His plan in your life. I think one of the great episodes in David's life that illustrated that was early in his life. He was just a shepherd boy tending the, the flock, his father's flock. And, and his brothers were off at war with uh, King Saul. And they were fighting the Philistines. And, and, and as David had gone that day uh, with his father's request to take some supplies to his brothers, it just so happened he showed up at the time that, that the great Philistine war machine called Goliath, the nine and a half foot tall giant of a man, fully clad in armor, breastplate, helmet, everything, spear, swords, and everything, is on the battlefield absolutely intimidating King Saul, absolutely intimidating the Israelite army. And David says, hey, if nobody else is going to take this guy down, I'll do it. And even when the king tried to put the armor on David, David said, nah, I never use that kind of stuff. <laughs> going out, just picture this, going out on a battlefield with only sandals, just everyday garb, and a sling with a few stones. David faces 
the biggest man he probably ever seen in his life. And not only was this dude nine and a half feet tall, but he is absolutely clad in iron from toe to, to, to foot. And he's got a, a shield bear next to him holding up his shield. It's so big. But I want you to hear the words of David there in 1 Samuel 17, 45. This tells, David, this tells us that David knew he was in the eye of God. He was in the mind of God. And that where he was was where God wanted him to be. And that he was in the hands of God. Because he looked up at that nine and a half foot tall giant. And he says, you come against me with a dagger and a sword and a spear. But I come against you in the name of El Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts. The God of Israel's armies whom you have defied. And today you're going to die. I'm going to cut your head off and feed you to the birds. And he did. Why? Because David was such an awesome warrior? No. Because he knew that he was in the hands of the most powerful deity in all the world. God Almighty. And God was working in his life. You know something, ladies and gentlemen? David says, oh, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. Uh, If I I should count them all, they'd be more than the sand. Oh, when I wake up, David says, listen, I I don't understand you. And that ought to be a relief to some of us, thinking that we can understand God. But let me tell you something. You don't have to understand, understand God to trust Him. That's why in Isaiah 55, 8, 9, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. David celebrates God's divine providence in his life and the life of all of his people who trust him. And finally, I want you to look at the last stanza with me. Because David is celebrating, in a different way I would add, knowing of God's holiness Knowing of God's holiness. Now, you'll notice that this is somewhat of a transition. Because what follows in, in, in these last verses here, verses 19 through 24, don't really fit with the previous verses. Because David is, David is praising the Lord and, and talking about the greatness and goodness of God and the benefits and blessings of being. But look at verse 19 with me as David is, is, is talking about knowing of the holiness of God. He's, he's talking to the wicked. And, and, and about the wicked, he says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And I do not loathe, and, and do, not, do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a the perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. David's talking about the Philistines, Jebusites, the Hittites, all the Canaanites, pagans, wicked. And you know what? That's Old Testament thinking. That's under a covenant of law and justice. God had told the children of Israel as they were going into into the promised land. Anybody that's not my people are enemies. They are to be destroyed. They're not to be tolerated. David is simply picking up on that covenant thinking of that day. He despised those people who were enemies of his God. You know in the book of Judges in chapter 531. 
The writer says, Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord. In the book of Proverbs, in chapter 29, verse 10, he talks about the bloodthirsty. Talking about the evil, the wicked, the sinful. The bloodthirsty, hate the blameless, but, but just seek his well-being. The just seek his well-being. And so you see this, this change of, of temperament, and you'll understand why as we finish out. David is, is now imprecating God's justice on wicked and ungodly men. And is prompted by his deep love for and devotion to God. Anything that would in any way go counter to his God, David saw it as an enemy. Because God saw it as an enemy. That's strange for us. Because we're not under a covenant of law and justice. We're under a covenant of grace. Where the Son of God has come on the scene and fulfilling the law, He says, love your enemy. And Jesus did. He hung on that cross and He's looked down at the very ones, the pagans who had put Him up there and those that had instigated it, His enemies. He said, Father, forgive them. Well, they know not what they do. So then, does that mean that we throw our arms around and embrace and welcome into fellowship all of those out there that, that, that despise the Lord and His gospel and make fun of Christianity and reject the Lord Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul settles that in 2 Corinthians in chapter 6 and verse 14. He says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial, the devil? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, and he goes on to quote, I will dwell in them and walk among them, speaking of his people. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Come out from among them. And be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be, you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Paul says, sure, we should love our enemies. We should reach out to those who are unsaved, who, who make fun of the gospel, who, who put down Christianity. Sure, we should love them. We should lovingly reach out to them and, 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 and let God lead us to get to, to, to go to them. To get to know them. To develop some type of a relationship. And pray that God would use us to share the truth of the gospel. That if it be God's will, they would come to Christ. They would turn from their sins. They would repent of their sins. They would put their faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. But at the same time, Paul says, you don't go out there and make them your, your best friend. You don't go out there and make them your, your lover. You don't go out there and, and, and make them your fiancé. You don't go out there and marry them. You don't enter into covenant relationship with them because you're of God. You are the people of God. There must be a separation in those absolutely close relationships. And David was zealous about that. And dear Christians, we need to be zealous about that. The world is constantly wooing Christians away from the, the umbrella of the holiness of God to compromise, to lower our standards, to become more palatable, to accept some of the things that they do. Because after all, it is in vogue and it's politically correct now. 
But you've got to remember, you are the, if you're a Christian, if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, you are in this world, but you're not of this world. You are called to be a holy people, set apart, and never drop your standards to the level of the, Lord, of, of the world, but always live in, within the righteousness of Christ in you. Finally, looking at verse 23, you'll understand. Why was David so zealous? Why was he so zealous about exalting the holiness of God even at the expense of, 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 of calling judgment upon the wicked? Look what David says in verse 23. Search me, O God. This goes back to verse 21, where, uh, verse 1 at the beginning of the psalm where David said, The Lord has searched me. David's prayer at the end of this wonderful psalm, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts or anxieties. And see if there's any way or any wicked way in me. Lord, knowing how you look at sin and knowing how much you hate sin, search me, O God. You love me, Lord. Search me. Penetrate my mind. Penetrate my heart. Look deep, Lord. Look thorough. Look. Make sure there's not one ounce. Like a person that's maybe suffered the ravages of cancer and they go back for that x-ray or scan or ct scan and pet scan or whatever you know and the doctor says everything looks good there's a tendency within that patient to say do it again check double check do everything you can make sure there's not one cancerous cell left in my body david said oh god because you are holy and i love you and i want to please you search me my mind and my heart and if there's any wickedness in me any sinful tendency in me Reveal it, O God. Why? Because David understood there were many eternal blessings and benefits that went along with being pure before God. It's called fellowship with God. Conforming to the will of God opens the door to the way of God. And so as we close the message, I wonder if that is a prayer that you can honestly pray. Is that a prayer that you would willingly pray? Is your relationship such with God, knowing that He is all-knowing, knowing that He is ever-present, knowing that He is providentially involved in your life on a day-by-day basis? Do you pray with a zeal? Search me, O God. Show me! It's very possible, Lord, that I've overlooked something that would cost me fellowship with You. And then, Lord, as you reveal it, lead me. Lead me in the way that you know I should go. That was David's life. That was his relationship with God. I hope that's a lesson that you can apply in your relationship with God.